0: The masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man. And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Doctor Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without you?
1: Right, Higher sight Chatters, we know that people have been gathering in secret groups for about as long as there's been people, for one reason or another. Some want to preserve sacred and powerful magical traditions from the destructive campaigns to eradicate them. Some want to influence and infiltrate the dominant power structures of their time. And some want to covertly organize world events, enslave humanity, and be the last hidden hand that reigns supreme on this island Earth. But unless you intend to spend years climbing the ranks of the countless societies, sects, and orders out there... To really know their traditions, true influence, and agenda can seem damn near impossible. But fear not, ladies and gentlemen, because the legendary author and now seven-time THC guest Nick Redfern has turned his attention to covert organizations in his newest book, Secret Societies, The Complete Guide to History's Rites and Rituals. It's 400 pages cataloging and describing well over 100 groups of the past and present who would rather be left unknown. We've talked to Nick about fatal UFO encounters, the world's weirdest places, Disney and the Deep State, cryptids, missing government files. And today we're diving deep into his hefty new encyclopedia of alliances, agendas, and under-the-radar groups. I couldn't be more psyched. Nick, my man, welcome back to The Higher Side.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on again.
1: Yeah, of course. Pleasure is always mine. We've been doing this uh, on occasion since my 25th episode way back in 2012. So I really have to thank you because you've obviously been a big part of the journey. And uh, you've written a ton of great books along the way. And now this Guide to Secret Societies, which seems like quite an undertaking, really. There are so many that have died out or have been squashed or absorbed. They change their names, stay out of the limelight. So it can be a challenging study. But before we get into specifics, what can you say about... This project overall, has it changed or influenced your outlook on secret groups? Did you come away thinking differently about the overreaching subject matter in any significant way?
2: Well, I think more than anything else, just the very existence of secret societies suggests that in terms of history and sort of the ongoing world today, you know, we don't really see the full picture because there are powerful figures pulling the strings behind the scenes. Now, other secret societies are sort of more obscure you know, where they don't have widespread power, so to speak. Other ones do. And, you know, there's a a wealth of bizarre historical ones as well. And also obscure ones too. So in other words, what I tried to do with the book was the format of the book, which was published by Visible Ink Press. I've done several books with them. And the layout is always the same. They like A to Z style, 200 entries per book. And so that was sort of the, the challenge was to come up with 200 secret societies to talk about. Now, of course, if you're going to talk about secret societies or, or semi-secret ones, I mean, you have to include the obvious ones like the Illuminati and the Masons that everybody's heard of. But what I tried to do with the book was to also sort of dig out a lot of obscure groups, but also ones that were very intriguing and you know fascinating stories surrounding them. And to sort of demonstrate to people the different meanings for what a secret society might actually be. Is it sort of a political group? Is it engaged in occult rituals and rites? Mm -hmm. Or is it something, you know, that's more of an economic-based organization that has an influence on the world stage, so to speak? So it pretty much covers just about everything that, I guess, conceivably could fall into the category of a secret society.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, if you just laid out your mission for the book, I would say mission accomplished because it's really good. to yeah, well, cast cool, a,
2: <laughs> No well, problem.
1: <laughs> you cast such a wide net and cover so many groups. Let me ask you, how often do you find that a secret group at its core has some type of magical tradition, whether it's rituals to travel hmm. to the astral plane or alchemy or contacting entities or something along those lines? It seems to be one of the biggest catalysts for forming a secret group with maybe racism coming in second.
2: No, that's actually a good point, because in many ancient groups, you know, you have these stories and and links to the occult and supernatural activity. I mean, even if you look at like the Freemasons, you know, one of the big influences is what's known as the so-called The Great Architect. And also, if you go back into Egyptian times, where they had their own secret societies, many of those were sort of based around like Egyptian magicians and things like that. Mm -hmm. And You can find that throughout so many of these organizations where, you know, they call upon ancient gods. You have secret societies that are not just occult-based, but have a connection with sort of devil worship and things like that. And I think the main areas that secret societies seem to gravitate to, power, influence, money, and the ability to control and lead, so to speak, and manipulate. And I think that probably says as much about not just the group, but the people who are drawn to them, people who have that sort of lust for power and influence, even if it's behind the scenes in a secret way, rather than like an overt, open way.
1: No doubt. And like I had mentioned, we've talked for many hours about many things at this point, and one slice of the weird pie you've written about and talked about extensively elsewhere is the Collins Elite. And they make an appearance in this book, too. But until recently, when I would hear that a group within the government is looking at the ET UFO phenomenon from the perspective of demons, I used to think that was simplistic reasoning from people who just wanted to fit this strangeness into their religious paradigm. But maybe this is a perspective that we shouldn't dismiss right away. What can be said about the Collins Elite and the way they're looking at the ET issue?
2: Well, yeah, well, the Collins Elite is a book that I first wrote about... Seven years ago, in 2010, in a book called Final Events, and it was a story that I was put onto onto by a guy named Ray Belche. Ray lives in Lincoln, Nebraska, and his background's interesting. He's a priest, but he was in the 80s. He ran the MUFON chapter in Nebraska, the Mutual UFO Network, and he was approached in the early 90s by a number of people working on this program in the department of defense which was essentially trying to resolve the ufo issue and even contact these you know alien entities predominantly by something like remote viewing like mind to mind contact and the more that the group got involved in it the more they came to believe they were dealing with something that wasn't extraterrestrial but something that was quite literally demonic that's how they came to perceive it now by their own admission this was their belief system. You know, it wasn't something that was born out of hard, provable fact. It was their suspicions and their connections and linkages and putting all these different things together. But what began as a think tank within the government became more of like a secret society where they had not just intelligence-based people on the program. After a while, they were inviting into the fold priests, demonologists. People who were sort of well versed and learned in ancient manuscripts on demonology and things like this. And they had all sorts of people on board. And it really did become sort of a study of the occult to try and understand the nature of the UFO phenomenon, but also having experts in the field of like the history of people like Alistair Crowley and Jack Parsons, who was one of Crowley's more famous disciples, so to speak. And so. In other words, you know, you had this group which was fluid and a bit flexible in terms of its membership and how it operated. But, you know, imagine going into this room where you have a demonologist sat next to an intelligence agent. Next to him is an expert in translating 700 year old Middle Eastern texts on demons. Hmm. And then somebody else who was an expert on. Ouija boards and how to summon up supernatural entities, sometimes which required the need for certain rituals to be undertaken, then you can see how it was transformed from something like the equivalent of Project Blue Book, you know, a UFO program, to where it became a definitive secret society, really.
1: Yeah, I just think that is such an interesting perspective, really. And Uh, I guess another organization that comes up in this book is STAC, which is another group kind of associated with this in this vein, right?
2: Yeah, and one of the interesting things is that I was never really sure what what it stood for, STAC. I I speculated in doing research that maybe it was something like science and technology and something else, you know. Mm -hmm. And because of what they're involved in, it could have been something like science, technology and Christianity, but I I don't know. I'm (laughs) speculating or guessing there. But, yeah, that's one of the interesting things is that there were at least a couple of groups. And certainly the Collins elite still exist. But that, you know, whether it's under that name or nickname, I don't know today. But the stack group was similar in the sense that they were also pursuing this sort of demonic angle. And there may well have been a third group as well. And we know for sure that there was a group in the late 60s created by the CIA called Operation Often. And this particular group also was heavily involved in trying to weaponize the occult. You know, And I think when you start going down that path of doing like Faustian pacts, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it can never end up well. But nevertheless, you had all these different groups, and they were all trying to understand the nature of supernatural phenomena, crossing over with demonic activity, and recklessly thinking can we harness this and weaponize it? Almost like, can we control demons, you know, and have them do our bidding, that sort of thing, which, you know, whether people believe in demons or they think they're supernatural entities that can be explained by science, you know, the different theories. But I don't think either way, it's it's a good thing to sort of go down that path. But the stat group, they were one of the groups that was trying to open doors and portals to whatever realms of existence these things came from. And, they were more of a looking at the science aspect of it, whereas the Collins elite were very much steeped in you know, Old Testament religious belief systems. So they were covering similar territory, but they're approaching it from a kind of a different angle, really.
1: Hmm. Wow, man. So any whispers or updates about the Collins elite, if they are still around, since you wrote that book seven years ago?
2: Yeah. Well, what happened was that, I mean, one of the things I pointed out early on in the book is that the people I spoke to from the group, and I only spoke to about 9, 10, 11, 12 of the members, some of them were retired. And I truthfully don't know how many people at any given time were in the group, but from some of the things that people said, any time, it probably was up to about 30 or 40. You know, it wasn't an agency like the size of the CIA or the NSA or the FBI. But it was this obscure cult-type group, society that was being funded, you know, in in a a covert fashion. Now, they told me that the Collins Elite was essentially like a nickname that was given to the group. It was like an in-house joke, which was a long, complicated story I won't go into. (laughs) But the Collins Elite was basically a nickname. Now, there may well have been an official classified name But if there was, I didn't get that. And I do think that possibly the term the Collins Elite was, from their perspective, it was like a comfortable way of being able to talk about the group without possibly compromising the real classified title. Now, to get to your point of the the question, I do still get snippets of information here and there from people who were clearly approached by the Collins Elite, were secretly consulted. People like demonologists, theologians, you know, people who... I'd looked into the history of witchcraft and things like that. And I've got several people who, since the book came out, said words to the effect of, you know, I was approached back in 1981 or whatever by this strange group of people from government, and they wanted me to decipher and translate and and relate to them this 14th century manuscript they got their hands on. And it's almost certainly the case, again, I can't prove it, but it's almost certainly the case that they were talking about the Collins elite. So I I have a a lot of snippets like that. What I don't have, you know, is the, the definitive smoking gun. But when I hear these stories time and again, snippets here and there from different people, not just across the country, but actually across the world as well, it does sound like the Collins elite, or at least the stat group or one of these others. But maybe they're all part and parcel of a bigger kind of umbrella organization, you know, that's something I've occasionally thought of as well.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is awesome, man. I mean, the, the Collins Elite perspective, it also brought back the Montauk Project to the forefront of my mind, because that seems more in line with the type of magical ritual in certain respects, right?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that stands out from everything that Collins Elite did was that it required some sort of like you said like a ritualistic aspect of this where you know when i said they were trying to contact what they, th- they first thought were aliens and then they came to believe were demonic entities we're not talking about trying to contact them and have them come and land down at area 51 or outside the white house In, what it was it was like a mind to mind thing and some of the guys said that the people who could do this really well kind of similar to the remote viewers of the 1970s and the 80s They had contacted on a mind to mind basis these entities, and initially they thought they were, as I said, aliens. And then the more they got into it, people in the project started to fall sick. Some of them died. There was sort of weird runs of bad luck and like some sort of negative backlash, like a dark cloud descended on the program. And when it worked, when these contacts worked, and even though it went down sort of a negative path, the reason was because to get back again to your point, is that they were performing rituals or getting themselves into altered states of mind and trying to summon these things and invoke them. So there was that ritualistic altered state type situation that you find in many secret societies. If you look at South America, Africa, Central America, where you have, again, these ritualistic activities, where you have the local shaman in the village, you know, gets into an altered state of mind and communes with higher entities. That's basically what they were doing with the Collins elite. In the intelligence agencies, they had people who could get into altered states of mind, whether through hallucinogenics or chemical stimulation, and they would try and use ancient rituals to invoke these things through. Now, apparently they did, but not in sort of physical form, but like an ethereal almost like an invisible presence, like a poltergeist, you know, in the in the home, that sort of thing, where it was clear things were going wrong and that there was this dark cloud. And, you know, it was like there was this atmosphere that you could almost cut with a knife. People sometimes get these haunted houses. They go into the house and they just get this weird vibe. And that's what happened with the Collins elite. It was as if their territory, where they were working, was somehow, almost like supernaturally infected by these things. And as I said, it went down a very dark path from there on.
1: Mm. Yeah, man. And then like the Montauk Project has some similar elements in that it seemed to be heavily based on consciousness studies to a degree or consciousness experiments. And people talk about things coming through portals, and I used to think about that in a very physical way. But now uh, I looked at some more Montauk Project literature, and they talk about creating bigfoot like Tolpas, which you know yeah. is like a spiritual entity so i'm thinking wow like and you mentioned jack parsons and, and alistair crowley earlier the connections between ritual magic of an ancient type and yeah. modern science it seems these people seem to be fairly linked or at least have interlocking interests that aren't quite uh, apparent on the surface
2: yeah that's right i mean if you look at for example both Crowley and Parsons, I mean, to a degree, they both had, we can make a good argument that they were both linked to UFOs. I mean, Crowley, for example, you know, was sort of notorious for performing rites and rituals, some of a very potentially dangerous nature, you know, calling forth supernatural entities, trying to invoke them, again, for power, money, sex, influence, the whole, the usual things that you get with secret societies. And, one of the perfect examples is just before the dawning of the 1920s, Crowley invoked this entity that was known as Lamb, Lam L-A-M. Right. And this, again, was when he was in this altered state of mind and performing this ritual. And if you look at Crowley's own drawing, his piece of artwork of Lamb, I mean, Crowley's picture looks eerily like the figure on the front of Whitley Strieber's Communion. The only Mm -hmm. difference is you don't have the heavy, thick, black eyes, but everything else, like a huge, hairless head on top of a small body and these penetrating eyes and pointed chin, it looks like a modern-day gray for the most part. Now, on top of that, one of Crowley's big disciples was, as I said, Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons in the 30s was one of the United States pioneering rocket pioneers. To the extent there's actually a crater named after him on the surface of the moon. And he was the leading player in the creation of the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. And even to this day, the JPL, every Halloween, they hold this sort of like a ritualistic little party to celebrate Crowley's life. And they bring these mannequins out dressed as Parsons and his cohorts, you know, in like white lab rats, that kind of thing. But Parsons had a really sort of interesting background because as well as being a rocket expert, as I said, he was heavily into the and a major follower of Crowley. And before rocket launches, you know, he would invoke the ancient god Pan as a means to ensure a safe flight. So, you know, he had all these military colonels and lieutenants and generals, you know, hoping all these rocket tests were going to go well. And then you've got the guy who's at the forefront of the program, you know, and he's conjuring up supernatural entities for a safe flight. You have to wonder what the military thought about this, but they knew he was a, a brilliant rocket scientist, so they sort of turned their heads at his, his other life. But, you know, he got involved with L. Ron Hubbard long before Scientology and even Dianetics. This was when, when Hubbard was still a sci-fi writer, and the two of them. Engage in a number of ritualistic activities and before his death in 52 Parsons was convinced that at least part of the 1947 UFO wave when he kicked off he believed that he had somehow opened a door that allowed the phenomenon to come through Mm. in other words It wasn't as simple as aliens coming from another world and flying through our atmosphere. It was somehow that he had invoked them and allowed them to come through or made it easier for them.
1: Wow. I don't think, I, I've known a lot of that stuff, but I don't think I ever have heard that uh, Parsons himself thought he might be uh, partially responsible for that kind of thing.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, he was heavily into the whole flying saucer business. I mean, I'll explain how it happened. In the summer of 47, you had the Kenneth Arnold sighting; that's what kicked everything off and mm-hmm. led to the coin of the term flying saucer. Now, because Arnold's story was so fascinating, inevitably a book was going to come out on it. And Arnold's book, The Coming of the Sources*, came out just a few years later. And it's actually written by Ray Palmer. Ray Palmer was the editor of a number of massively selling sci-fi magazines in the 1940s and onwards. So in other words, you have Kenneth Arnold, the guy who kicked off the UFO phenomenon, linked to Ray Palmer. Now, Ray Palmer, as I said, was a major sci-fi guy in the magazine world, and Ray Palmer knew L. Ron Hubbard because, at the time, Hubbard was a sci-fi writer, and the two had crossed paths many times. And from there, you have a connection also between Hubbard and Parsons. And there are rumors, and and they are rumors, but it wouldn't surprise if they're not true, that at some point... All these people met together. So you, you even had Arnold, you had Palmer, you had Hubbard and you had Parsons in the same room chatting about all of this. Now, as I said, that's still at the rumor mill level, but it wouldn't surprise you because of the deep links that the four had together. So again, you can understand why a case can be made that there was a direct connection between Parsons, Arnold, Hubbard and all the rest of them in the sci-fi world who also gravitated to the occult cult as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Those were interesting times for sure. And kind of along this line of thinking with aliens and demons, you write about the Loch Ness Dragon Cult, which I'd never heard of before. But if we're going to look at the possibility of aliens being related to magical workings, could this be true for the Loch Ness Monster as well?
2: Well, I actually wrote a book last year called Nessie, which was about all the paranormal aspects of the Loch Ness monster mystery and there's really no doubt in my mind that there's a there is sort of like an overwhelming paranormal aspect to a lot of late monster stories you know it's not just a colony of plesiosaurs and that's the end of the story now one of the interesting things about Loch Ness is its history of phenomena that goes far beyond just the Nessies so to speak I mean our old friend Alistair Crowley actually owned a house pretty much on the shore of Loch Ness called Boleskine House, which burned down at the end of 2015. And, I mean, the story itself of Crowley is, is, you know, intriguing enough. The fact that he had this house there, again, performing all sorts of rituals. This was in the early part of the uh, 20th century. And, again, he was trying to summon up supernatural entities from within the loch. And people who visited Boleskine House said it had this weird atmosphere and people just Got a horrible vibe and just felt creeped out by it. And certainly, two following owners of the Boleskine house actually committed suicide one inside the house in the early 1960s, and the other one, who was a famous British actor named George Sanders, he committed suicide in the early 70s, both of them having owned Boleskine house. So, you know, there was a, a weird vibe there. So, we also have a lot of UFO sightings at Loch Ness and paranormal activity, but as far as this particular dragon cult's concerned, again, it's a very weird story, and it relates to events that began in the late 1960s and may well have gone on for potentially years after that, but what happened was that in the summer of 1969. A trio of American tourists were up at Loch Ness. They actually weren't there to look for Nessie, although, you know, you're not going to go to Loch Ness and not try and find Nessie, you know. (laughs) But their main interest was actually Alistair Crowley. They wanted to see Boleskine House. Now, right next to where Boleskine House used to stand, there's an old cemetery which goes back years, well, centuries, actually. And it has a history attached to it of witchcraft and witch covens and rumors of sacrifice and all sorts of things going on there. And these three tourists were walking around the cemetery and they found what looked like some sort of carefully folded piece of cloth. And when they opened it up, it was actually like a tapestry, about four feet by about five feet. And it was wrapped around a large sea shell. And the writing on it, they didn't know it at the time, but it was soon deciphered. It turned out to be Turkish. And one of the words translated as serpent now, it so happens that stories of lake monsters in Turkey are quite prevalent. The most famous one relates to a place called Lake Van, where, like Nessie, you know, Lake Van has a tradition of a lake monster. And there were a lot of other ritualistic imagery embedded on this tapestry. Now, this particular piece of tapestry was shown to a well known Loch Ness monster seeker of that particular time in the late 60s named Ted Holliday. Ted Holiday started going to Loch Ness in the early 60s, and he began by thinking that he was dealing with like a colony of unknown animals, just creatures that science hadn't found yet or even classified. But the more that he dug into it, the more he began to experience like weird synchronicities and kind of like the Collins elite, just strange stuff would overtake him. And there was like this unsettling atmosphere. And he was shown this tapestry and began to dig into this story even further and heard whispers and rumors locally that this dragon cult had actually been there for years, possibly decades, maybe even longer, and that it had catastrophic mistake. One of the members had mistakenly left that tapestry where it was after performing rituals the previous night, because it was the following morning when the tapestry was found. So Ted Holiday began looking into this more and more, and... Came to hear a lot of disturbing stories, like sacrifices, not of animals, but of people. And he started looking into stories of, you know, how many people in Scotland go missing every year, that kind of thing. So he's really digging deep into this issue. And the more he dug into it, the more that Ted Holliday came to believe the Loch Ness monsters were something supernatural, not flesh and blood animals that zoology hadn't found or whatever. And He started to have weird experiences then, and it culminated in 1973 when he had an encounter right on the shores of Loch Ness with nothing less than like a full-blown man in black. And the following year, the exact same spot, he had a serious heart attack, which he perceived as like a warning, you know, to stay away. And he actually didn't. And he died young. He died at 59 from another heart attack. So, you know, some people suggest that all of this came back on him, really, that he didn't walk away from it so the rituals this secret dragon cult the atmosphere that was already created by Crowley you know some people think it was ripe for basically for holiday you know to sort of be on a doomsday trip almost
1: (laughs) damn that is provocative stuff I love it I also remember we talked about Mac Tony's and his idea of crypto-terrestrials, that these physical aliens could be more closely tied to the Earth than just some convoy passing through from another galaxy, perhaps an ancient race living inside the Earth. And when you add the magical or spirit realm element to that, I think the case that these things sit closer to home gets pretty strong.
2: It does, really. I mean, you know, you can look at a lot of these things where... It's like me when I first got into all this stuff as a kid. Everything's black and white, as most things are when you're a kid, you know. You don't think too much about the feasibility of this or that. It's like Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. You don't question, well, of course he exists. You know, he comes down the chimney every Christmas Eve. And for any little kids who might be listening, yes, he really does. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, it's one of these situations where when you look into these kind of things, and and it is all black and white to start with. But then the more you look into it, you find, well, hang on, this doesn't seem really logical. And this seems more, more feasible that we are dealing with like a homegrown thing. My view is that a lot of the phenomenon is not extraterrestrial in the sense it's coming from multiple star systems, multiple light years away. But perhaps something that's more coexists with us, you know, like multi-dimensional. It's still alien in one sense, but not extraterrestrial alien. It's sort of coexisting alien. Now, Mac's stuff was interesting and still is interesting. The idea that there could be surviving pockets of not us, the human race, but something very similar to Homo sapiens. And that when we started to infest the planet even more, that they decided to move underground and that they only surface from time to time, and that perhaps they created the alien UFO myth as a means if they were seen, nobody would ever guess what they really were, because we were so swamped with the UFO meme and the alien meme. So in other words, they were like a stealthy hidden society deep below the planet that only surfaces from time to time, but who were very skillful and adept at camouflage and subterfuge and making sure that we never really got on the trail of who and what they really are. And so they put out these conflicting stories. We come from Mars, we come from Venus, we come from Zeta Reticuli, you know, and keep us guessing only because they knew they weren't supermen, you know, and they knew they were going to be seen from time to time. So the idea of a secret society of semi-humans might explain Something else I talk about in the book, and that's the Men in Black mystery, which also has like a secret society, and atmosphere to it. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of these creepy looking guys silencing people who've seen UFOs. But again, the witnesses describe them as not looking entirely human. They're sort of very pale. Their eyes are often described as larger and stary. They don't really seem to understand our mannerisms and customs. But, you know, they look enough like humans where you would pass them in the street, perhaps and not look. But if you look really close, you would see a lot of odd angles, you know, that that don't make them not look like us. So in that sense, perhaps the the men in black could be crypto terrestrials. Mm -hmm. Again, sort of trying to prevent people from getting too close to the truth of who and what this are, who and what this secret society actually is, you know.
1: Yeah, great points. And I do love tales of underground cities and civilizations, and you have a great one in this new book. Apparently, according to Howard Mill, in 1931, this guy he had met, Dr. F. Bruce Russell, and his friend fell into an underground city in Death Valley?
2: Yeah, there's actually a number of stories coming out of Death Valley. I mean, I could have made that section way longer, but I was limited, you know, to 150,000 words and 200 entries. and. The publisher would have gone crazy if I'd have turned in like a 200,000-word book. But yeah, I mean, the, the stories coming out of Death Valley collectively go back to the early 1920s and through to the latter part of the 30s and slightly into the early 40s. And they're all very similar, where you have people like explorers, you know, Indiana Jones types, prospectors, things like that, you know, people looking for gold and precious items claim to have found ways into underground facilities, that sounds quite sophisticated, but who've either fell into or discovered old tunnels, caverns, some that may have been carved out, some may have been natural caverns that are, over time have been sort of carefully hidden. They've just got small entrances and exits and that you wouldn't really know where they were if they were sort of carefully concealed. But the stories typically relate how these various prospectors and archaeologists and adventurers and explorers made their way, way, way deep down under the ground. You know, we could be talking like a mile, half a mile, more than that maybe. And coming across what looked like the remnants of ancient societies. Now, of course, if that's true, the idea that there could be deep under the California deserts, the equivalent of, as some of them described, almost as like Greek architecture and Roman architecture temples, you know, pillars and statues, and massive ancient rooms. Hmm. If that's true, then it would massively alter the history of the United States, the idea that there was some sort of super race that existed way before us. But there are a number of rumors that some of the people who made their way into these caverns and caves in a very really weird and eerie and creepy way they found themselves being followed and watched very often late at night by these people that, with hindsight, again, kind of sound like the Men in Black where they would wear these pulled-down hats and come out at night and you wouldn't be able to see them too well. But these people were being followed and occasionally they would cross paths with these people who would then glare at them, you know, as if to say, we know what you're doing and stop, you know, don't come back to our realm. And in some cases, it was like, I mean, a literal threat. It was, whatever you know, just stop right now. You know, nothing else will happen to you. <laughs> so, you know, you've got a lot of weird stories about these people looking into these underground areas and then finding themselves, you know, looking out the window late at night and there's these three shadowy figures or whatever looking up at the window as if just trying to intimidate them, kind of saying, we know what you saw, leave it alone, <laughs> that kind of thing.
1: That's great. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Of course, uh, Antarctica has been the topic of much speculation kind of in this realm. And I'm not sure if you've been seeing this crazy list of people who are going down there for some reason, but just in the past few months, John Kerry went down there as Secretary of State, as well as this Russian Orthodox patriarch of Moscow, this Carol Third, and also Buzz Aldrin. And it really does seem like po- the possibility is they might have found something that A privileged few are being invited to see religious, political, and uh, space elite.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of those themes, science, technology, religion, history, secret places, secret groups, all of those are sort of staple parts of secret society, you know, whether they were an official secret group or not. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of weird stories coming out of Antarctica, and there have been for, for decades. There's long been these rumors that deep below the ice before that part of the planet was covered in ice there may well have been just regular land masses. And so if that was the case, then even if there were massive ice flows came over and just overwhelmed the landscape, as it would now if there was like an ice age, but you might find that ten thousand years after the ice age and the ice is still there, you know, three hundred feet down, you've still got the remnants and the you know, the rubble of what was once New York. Or LA or wherever, but it's such an impenetrable kind of landscape that no one would ever know. So I do sometimes wonder if that might be the case with things like Antarctica. I'm not really a big fan of the idea, you know, that there are these gigantic alien bases deep below Antarctica. But what I do think is possible is, like I said, that before we've had the successive ice ages, that maybe that area was regular territory just normal environment. And it was overwhelmed by ice. And maybe that might explain if something had been found, that would make sense if there are remnants of that earlier civilization still in that particular area. Hmm.
1: I mean, human history is a lot longer and stranger than we've been told, it seems. I mean, the evidence seems to suggest that. And Antarctica is the fifth largest continent. You'd expect there to be something interesting worth digging up. I've heard some people suggest that Maybe even Atlantis was a city on Antarctica and that this whole continent, I mean, it is technically underwater. So maybe there is something to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because like I said, if you imagine that people talked about another ice age and how some of the early ones seem to have happened almost inexplicably quickly if there was a sudden alteration in the atmosphere or the environment. But, you know, I, I come back to that issue. If you imagine something like Let's just take New York, you know, overwhelmed by ice sheets, hundreds and hundreds of feet deep, pummeled all the buildings, flattened them. Hmm. People died, the buildings over time just became so degraded, you know, turned to rubble. And we're talking over periods of thousands of years, so there really wouldn't be much left beyond what you would find at an archaeological dig at Stonehenge or somewhere like that. So I could see how something could be found, and maybe plans would be, would be undertaken secretly probably to dig further into Antarctica, to dig down, you know, and actually see if there's any way to penetrate what we perceive as Antarctica today and try and figure out, if we keep going down and keep going down and down, are we going to find evidence of a race, whether Atlanteans or or whoever, that once lived there and maybe kind of like Mac Tony's crypto-terrestrials, perhaps they... Fled the area when they knew what was happening, started over somewhere else. And perhaps seeing the ice flows, maybe that dictated why they decided to go underground for fear that what happened was going to happen to the entire planet.
1: Yeah. If we ever were on that landmass, it would be a good place to try and unearth things from the ancient world, which also does seem to be a subtext of the constant battling in the Middle East. To bring it back to a topic from your latest book, you talk about an immortality group based in Utah, that might have sprung up around some ancient things found in Baghdad after the Iraq invasion?
2: Yeah, this is like a really weird story because, you know, when the invasion of Iraq occurred, rumors started to fly around that although, you know, the primary reason was to oust Saddam Hussein, the theory is that it also acted as a cover for a great deal of other things. Now, one of the key events that happened when the invasion of baghdad occurred was the looting of the the baghdad museum mm-hmm. and the museum you know thankfully it's sort of been rectified etc now but the museum was home to i mean literally thousands and thousands of priceless artifacts but when the military went in they realized in conjunction with the staff who they were working with that it didn't look like that these were sort of random anarchy-driven rioting and pillaging and looting, it seems that the people who had done this had done their best to make it look like that, but they'd actually specifically targeted certain areas of the museum where some intriguing artefacts were supposedly kept. Now, one of the rumours was that some of this material evidence was ancient extraterrestrial technology That was somehow linked to the legends of like for example king gilgamesh whose kingdom was in what is today iraq its place called uruk Mm -hmm. and if you read the epic of gilgamesh it talks about how he didn't really sound completely human he was like a classic one of the you know the ancient giants of the bible and things like that and gilgamesh supposedly reigned for like 130 years which if true you know he clearly wasn't entirely human but he apparently had an obsessive quest to understand and capture the secrets of immortality—that's a—you know—that's the basics of the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the theory is somebody, some elite group, went in to try and find these ancient alien artifacts with a means to try and provide sort of a global elite with immortality, you know, by finding this ancient technology. And this then follows over into this story that. When I wrote the book I actually only had one source that related to me and I I predominantly put the story out to see if anybody else could sort of confirm it. You know, when you hit a brick wall, sometimes that's what you have to do, you have to just put it out. And since the book came out I've actually had three people who've provided other snippets and mm. all of them, interestingly enough, said well, yeah, the group did exist, it looked into it, but they didn't really get very far with it. Now, if they're all lying Granted, again, this is speculation, but if they were lying, I think they probably would have said, oh yeah, it all worked great, you know, and this elite have got it, because it would amp up the excitement. But they basically said, well, yeah, they did have these artifacts, they did have these ancient texts and material evidence, but nobody got anywhere with it, and apparently they're still working on it, but it's, it's not achieved anything, and to me, that sounds more believable, than spinning a wild story, you know what I mean? Yeah. So ironically, the fact that the program didn't work, to me at least, adds weight to what the informants told me. But yeah, it was I was never told specifically where in Utah this was going on, but it was described as like a classified fortified place underground, which kind of provokes imagery of the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, which does a lot of secret research into like viruses and chemical warfare. So for them to have an underground facility there, which Dogway does, it wouldn't surprise me if it operated out of Dogway. But also, it sounds a little bit not unlike the Collins elite, because apparently this group out in Utah was also rereading things like the Epic of Gilgamesh and a lot of other ancient texts to try and figure out the truth of immortality. So I think there's more to this story. But whether or not anything's been achieved, you know, that that's an entirely... Different aspect, but we need far more evidence for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, for a second there, I thought they had something figured out when you look at the ages of a lot of the elite class, but then uh, David <laughs> Rockefeller kicked the can apparently on the solstice there, so maybe they got some more work to do.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where if we're going to be immortal, you don't want to be living to 800, but you stop aging when you're 75. You know, <laughs> then you've got to live 700 years at the age of 75. Yeah. I think mean, most people would say, well, you know, just fix it so that I'm going to be 30 for the next 2,000 years, and mm. that'll do, you know. So I think, you know, immortality, we actually know why we age, you know, it's just basically due to the division of cells, and when they stop dividing properly, the body starts to degrade, you get old, et cetera, et cetera. But we understand why that happens. But if we could find a way to halt it or reverse it, then in theory, immortality isn't just a pipe dream or a fantasy, it could actually be achieved, but we just don't have the technology yet, so far as we know, to do it. Right. But, you know, it, it's not impossible that it could happen, but of course then the big question is, well, would it be made available to everybody, or would some sort of global elite be the only ones that would know, and perhaps when they got to a certain age, the story would be put out that they died, <laughs> but they just, they didn't actually die, you know, they just live in sort of a clandestine place, whatever, or location so where no one would know they're actually still living, and living, and living, and living
1: (laughs) Yeah, well I mean, that is some of the conspiratorial speculation around David Rockefeller's death, because it was announced on that solstice, which is a kind of a (laughs) ritualistic date, but you know, you're right about that um, you want a young vessel, I don't think he's doing cartwheels down there or anything No (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So another thing I want to ask you about is Uncracked Codes, this Cicada 3301 saga in particular. Pretty interesting story. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit before, but what can you tell us about that?
2: This is one of these situations where we find a secret society, or is it a secret society, where we're sort of so baffled by the existence of it, but it does exist. Now, it's called Cicada 3301. And basically what's happened is that between 2012 and 2016, these strange puzzles have been placed online. And people have been encouraged to essentially try and crack these codes. And all sorts of theories have been put forward as to who this group, this clandestine group is, and how and why they're doing this. Now, one of the interesting theories is that it's actually some kind of intelligence agency, whether the US or the UK or who knows. And they're looking for highly skilled people who are brilliant at cracking code, deciphering codes. And so they put a challenge out, which seems kind of like an exciting, fun thing to do, but at its heart might be, you know, something that that relates to national security and government secrecy and that kind of thing. For example, when this first, surfaced again one of the reasons why i included this in the book is because britain's daily telegraph newspaper actually speculated that it was either the illuminati or the freemasons that were doing this so in other words you have a lot of different theories and a lot of sort of high profile magazines and newspapers have covered this like for example rolling stone magazine they gave it major coverage now one of the things that rolling stone magazine found out as they dug into it, was that a 2013 version of one of these codes that came out was actually a cipher based on one of Alistair Crowley's writings. Mm. So again, you know, we have this going back to, to Crowley. And you also had like Britain's GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of the NSA. Um, there were rumors that they might have been involved in it, again, trying to find people to recruit. And people who were perhaps a little bit alternative and who thought outside the box. But to this day, we don't really know. So at one end of the spectrum, you've got people like the NSA or GCHQ. And at the other end, you've got Aleister Crowley and Freemasons and the Illuminati. Hmm. And other people are somewhere balanced between the two. So it's a a very intriguing mystery that's that's still going on.
1: (laughs) Well, any good mystery is going to touch on all those buzzwords and groups for sure. (laughs) But this part of it was new to me. This is from your book. You say in November 2013, a message left anonymously on the website Pastebin came from someone who claimed to have been brought in from a superior in the military and said that the Cicada Group was a left-hand path religion disguised as a progressive scientific organization comprised of military officers, diplomats, and academics who are dissatisfied with the direction of the world. Well, we've heard that before, haven't we?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because, again, to some degree, that sounds a little bit like the Collins elite, and they were sort yeah. of, you know, getting bigger and bigger. You know, as you said, it's a left-hand path religion described as this scientific organization comprise of military people, diplomats, academics, which you know, a lot of academics are brought into the collins elite, you know, not as members but as consultants. So in other words, we can find a lot of parallels and linkages between these groups suggesting that they're all part and parcel of some bigger umbrella. And we're sort of looking at them, thinking or assuming that what we're dealing with is multiple completely independent organizations, but in reality have, you know, like a central hub. When you find these connections with Crowley and demonology and secret societies and powerful people in governments and the military, you know, this even sort of ties in, like I said, with the, you know, the Iraqi issue. So put all those together. and I think a good case can be made that many of these secret societies are part of a much larger single secret society.
1: Right. Yeah. Some like kind of they they uh, spider web out. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, people that think just this past presidential election is the result of some kind of powerful underground network making a move from within the deep state. And I've even heard some say that they think the uh, cicada puzzles were a recruitment tool to find just the sorts of people with the technical skills to facilitate such a thing.
2: Yeah, I've got to be honest. I haven't heard that one, but <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that sort of You know, it's a major talking point. There's no doubt about that, and certainly agencies have picked up on it. You know, perhaps an agency that knows nothing about it but wants to know about it. And I think that's one of the things that certainly politics demonstrates to us that the left and the right hand don't always know what each other are doing, and there are secret little cliques within political parties, and somebody's working for somebody else, and And it gets really complicated, you know. I mean, you only have to look at the Russia thing right now to see that's not necessarily anything to do with secret societies, obviously, but you can just see how it becomes so complicated and just filled with intrigue because people just don't really know what's going on.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: related to these things we're talking about, I don't know if you've heard this story going around of the missing guy from Brazil, but it's pretty interesting It involves some... ...type of high-level code, apparently, this guy, after keeping his room locked for a month, Bruno Borgs had disappeared and left in it a fully encrypted language and symbols all over the walls, along with 14 handwritten books that were also encrypted, and a statue of Giordano Bruno, Italian philosopher... Worth about $2,500. The books apparently were impeccable in symmetry and alignment. And his family knew nothing about the statue. He was alone when it was delivered. It stands on a symbol that apparently resembles uh, an alchemist transmutation circle. He was uh, constantly asking people to invest in a project that he had without telling them what it was all about. He had just told his mother he was writing 14 books that would change humanity in a good way, and he got a $6,500 loan from his cousin, and he said he was able to finish his project, but he disappeared on March 27th, and he left these 14 encrypted books arranged in a strange way around this center circle. Very odd.
2: Yeah, actually, actually, I did see that, and You've got a couple of stories like that, almost identical. One that springs to mind was a guy named Wilbur Wilkinson. In 1953, Wilbur Wilkinson, a friend of his named Carl Hunra, they rented an aircraft from a small airstrip in Southern California, took to the skies because they were supposedly going to meet some very human-looking aliens in the California desert. And this was very much like the whole contactee movement of the 50s, you know, going out to desert locations and meeting these long-haired space brothers that they were known. And reportedly, Hunrath and Wilkinson had been contacting these aliens, kind of like the Collins elite, in sort of a mind-to-mind fashion. And supposedly, they channeled down that, you know, we want to meet you in the desert. Well, they hired this aircraft, took to the skies, and were never seen again. The plane was never found. Hunrath and Wilkinson were never found. And the police and the FBI, there was like a quite extensive investigation. And Nothing ever turned up at all. It was for all intents and purposes. They'd vanished. The plane had vanished. There was no telltale fires in the surrounding hills, you know, in the trees or whatever. And they were just gone. Now, what happened was that the police and the press descended on Wilkinson's house. And in the basement, even his wife didn't realize this, but all across the walls, Wilkinson had sort of scrawled what he believed, was like some sort of ancient alien language. And it was described in the local newspapers, the L.A. Press at the time, you know, who were invited down or made their way in. Hmm. And you know they saw all these sort of images, these strange hieroglyphics, etc. And it was perceived as being this sort of alien language that Wilkinson, Wilbur Wilkinson, had been scrupulously writing it all across the walls in his basement, in his den, And he was never seen again. And apparently photographs were taken of this odd writing. And actually drawings of them were reproduced in the local newspapers. But uh, I actually haven't seen the photographs. But apparently some were taken. So his story, in in some respects, is actually quite close to this breaking one as well.
1: Amen. Well, Nick. That about does it for us. Another great book written, another great podcast recorded. Again, I really appreciate it, man. Let the people know what you got going on and where they can get more red fern in their diet.
2: All righty. Well, I'll be speaking at a conference in Kent, Ohio, called the Kent, Ohio Paranormal Weekend on on the last weekend of April, and I'll be speaking about all my research into the men in black at that one. And people can reach me at my blog, which is titled Nick Redfern's World of Whatever. So if you just type that into a search engine, you'll find it it will come up as the first entry. People can reach me at Twitter, Nick Redfern UFO, or also at Facebook. There's a bunch of Nick Redfern's. But if you scroll down, you'll see me. And I'm always happy to chat with people. If they've got any questions, want to share stories or want advice on anything, just let me know. And uh, you know, if I can answer it, I will.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, you are the man, Nick. Until next time, keep doing what you do.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, Greg.
1: You got it. And boom goes that dynamite, people. Nick Redfern doing what he does best, bringing the weird. He is such a beast when it comes to cranking out books. I always enjoy them. And like I mentioned, Nick has been doing shows with me since the beginning, so I really got to thank him. It's been quite a ride. If you are in the Midwest... It's not often there's a badass event to go to, believe me, I know. So, if you are free this weekend, go see Nick at the Kent, Ohio Paranormal Weekend. Tell him I said what's up. But I thought this was a good one. I'm glad we got to talk about the Collins Elite Saga, something I'm looking at with new eyes. Cicada 3301, glad that got back in the mix. Of course, I gotta give a shout out as well to my main man Kyle, who actually brought up that Cicada recruitment theory on the last q a that i did for plus members that is why i kind of laughed when nick said he hadn't heard of it because i was not surprised it's just something a buddy of mine came up with but i thought it was really interesting and that story about the guy in brazil is super weird too right what the hell it's like the guy opened a dimensional doorway and never made it back I'm also really getting into this explanation of magic for everything. I do realize this. Aliens are magic. The Montauk Project was magic. Roswell was magic. The Loch Ness Monster was magic. I would understand if that's getting annoying to some of you, but that's kind of where I lean these days. And we've talked about the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot being some kind of paranormal, interdimensional thing, so it's not really that different. But I guess I suppose we're just considering the roles of human consciousness or ritual involvement in these things now. I definitely don't want to obsess over a single narrative, but this is the one I find offered up the least in conspiracy media, and I think it also has the most merit. If you're really going to get into stories like The Nine or the channelings with John Dee and these things that people have seen during Intense Ritual, well, the doors are wide open to what's possible. But we are a show of multiple perspectives, and I do leave... Space aliens on the table in an age where, I gotta say, a lot of people aren't even leaving space on the table. Yes, I think NASA tells a lot of lies and uses a lot of CGI, but I don't know if that means space itself is fake. I just cannot go full Eric Dubé. I am sorry. But you never go full Dubé. I mean, isn't that what uh, Robert Downey Jr. said in Tropic Thunder? Something like that. I still like the earthly beings living inside the Earth from a previous age explanation, too. Let's not write that off either, of course. It's funny, because I forget sometimes how deep I am in this stuff, and I might be drunk and wander into my special lady's girl night and start asking her friends if they think aliens are really from space or more inside the Earth, or are they more spirits? And they just look at me like, I have never thought about that once. Ever. So I just go fuck off and ascend the stairs to my isolation tower. And it's just true. So many people don't believe that UFO sightings or abductions or ritual conjurings are ever real, that it's never happened. I actually forget that sometimes. I look at different explanations for a phenomenon that I've already fully accepted, and some people just think all those stories and sightings and documents just amount to nothing, which to me is actually harder to believe at this point. What I do find silly, though, is the disclosure narrative, that the government is going to tell us everything eventually, or if we just ask right, it's like we're Oliver Twist-style orphans shuffling up to Congress, please, sir, can I have a little disclosure? Begging Congress, who probably doesn't know shit anyway about disclosure, is futile, if you ask me. I think a lot of it's deep state and deep corporate now, and they're not telling anybody anything. Never look to authority for answers, never look to them for help. So, I'm rambling at this point. But if you like the first hour of this show, please sign up and become a member of THC+. Plus. You get an extra hour of this in every episode, lifetime access to the forums, the occasional extra stuff like the Q&A I mentioned earlier, five bucks a month, five shows a month, nice and simple. In today's Plus show, if you're wondering what you missed or what you got extra... We got into alchemy and the men in black of the old world. Apparently they had visitations of a similar nature. We talked about shamanic shape-shifting cultures and those traditions around the globe. There's way more out there than I thought. We also got into the story of the Hexam Heads, which was new to me. Cannibalism and groups that practice it. Groups and sects that have formed around UFO sightings like Heaven's Gate. The curious connections between fascism and the occult slash UFOs. I mean, you don't have to dig too deep to see some threads there that connect. And maybe you're asking yourself why like I was. We got into the case that the cattle mutilation saga could be more related to ritual than ray guns. Again, with this shit for me, right? And we got Nick's thoughts on the state of the secret space program. All classic higher side chat stuff. Go to plus.com to sign up for the full ride if you haven't already. Thanks to those who do. This was a good one. I think I've done what I can. Your move, underground organizations, secret societies, fraternal orders, and ritual workers.
0: Your fucking move. Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at 7 And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your 9 to 5 You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the side Chats you get to your desk, and your boss says it's a mess, and your soul slowly goes to a place where nothing grows. When you think he's not around, you insert a steady sound. The OM says turn it down, and you say it's just the higher side chats. Oh, do you think you'd be invited to Bohemia Grove, to a Bilderberg Club? Oh, do you think you'd be invited? By a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down to the center of the earth Through the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare Of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the High Side Chats